my oldest mentor, the man I'm going to see next week, actually, up in North Carolina, try to make a yearly pilgrimage to his place. He's a retired professor uh, of systematics and went to, got his PhD where I did and wrote a recommendation for me, and he's a spiritual father to me. He, um, I, I actually studied at the seminary I did because of him, because we sat down together and when I was touring different seminaries, trying to decide where God would, would call me, and he, uh, we sat down at the original Pancake House in Charlotte, and by the end of our time, he said, why don't you just come live with me for your first year? And that was it. I, what I wanted was not just a sort of briefcase backpack education in the classroom. I wanted life on life. I wanted to, to learn from men who were like Christ, as well as preaching Christ from the pulpit on Sundays, as well as professoring and teaching in the classroom. And this, this, this was what I, what I got at uh, my seminary. And Dr. Kelly is his name. He would, for decades, he's retired now, and he's writing his, finishing his third volume and about to start his fourth volume of his systematic theology, but um, still preaching every Sunday at church, and but still obviously, you know, receiving me for three or four days every year and as often as I like to go visit him and talking with me, receiving my calls whenever I have a question or just want to catch up, but still mentoring young men. But for three or four or five decades, he, he's just every few years with every new crop of students, he'll pull in three or four or five men under his young men under his wing and he'll bring it down to his, to his home. They used to be in Dillon, South Carolina. Now it's in North Carolina on the weekend and he'd drive you through the old towns and share meals together he'd have you cook for him because he doesn't know he really doesn't know his way around the kitchen very well he speaks eight languages but he can't really make much in the kitchen uh definitely man of focus and he would uh you know invite us to go hunting with him and pray with him and and uh have a smoke and a drink with him on his back on his back patio and after a meal with his with his wife and every every semester he would announce at the first chapel of the of the semester when the day would be in his office that he would be available and invite all the students in the seminary to come and, and pray with him for an hour, bring their lunches and so it would either be typically a, a Monday, Tuesday or Wednesday, depending on his schedule and you come during the lunch hour and you just pack into his office. He had shelves and shelves of books and we all love that we'd all peruse them and we'd get together and we'd share a few prayer requests and then he'd say let's go to prayer and he'd, he'd read a psalm and then we'd start praying and uh he was a man of he is a man of prayer he's a man of humility and he's a man who loves jesus more than anything and has a vibrant vital relationship with with christ with the living god through jesus and full of the spirit and so I looked for those three things in being mentored and being discipled and 
I want, you know, you want your mentor, your disciple to rub off on you. You want to be more like them because they're more like Jesus. And you want them to be pursuing Jesus headlong and just to kind of draft, be alongside of them and come under the yoke as it were. And so humility and a man of prayer and a man who loves Jesus with, with his whole heart, that's, uh, that's who he was. And that's one of the reasons that he would take young men, not, not just teach and not just preach, but take young men um, by threes and fives every few years and just pour his life into them, share his life with them, show them his clay feet. Uh, but, but, but that was more of an education to me probably than anything in seminary. And I still draw on that more than almost anything else I learned in seminary. Um, and that shaped me and it, and I would say it made me more like Jesus. And, and I'm trying to do that much less perfectly with, with other young men and, uh, with other men. And, and that's, um, that's what we see Paul doing here in Acts 20. The first 16 verses, really the first few verses, the, the, the last part of Acts 21 verses 1 through 16 is Eutychus falling out of, out of a window and dying and then um, Paul goes down and we'll talk about the rest of it. But uh, So the passage is sort of divided up into a couple of halves, but the first seven or so verses in Acts 20, we see Paul bouncing around the Aegean uh, everywhere from Asia up to... Uh, good. Macedonia, northern now northern Greece, and uh, I almost said Yugoslavia, the Balkans, Croatia, Serbia, do uh, down now down to Greece, and going to these churches, and 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 we this isn't recorded here, but we know that during this we know from his letters during this time he he was writing letters to the Corinthian church and to Rome, to the Roman church. We have the Book of Romans during this time, but he's taking his disciples with him. He's going back through churches and encouraging them and teaching. But he's not doing it alone. He's, if you look at the disciples, he's got a number of, of men with him, and, and a lot of them are from places that he's planted churches and spent time in. And so, you know, he doesn't just head, head to a place, teach there, and then leave and not take anyone with him. He, he carries, he brings people along. These men have come from places that are, in some cases, hundreds of miles away with him for a time. And they're living with him, and they're learning from him as he ministers, and he li- as he lives, and as he teaches, and as he, no doubt... Uh, does applies his tent making trade, and you know Jesus did the same thing. This is why Paul does this. It's part of the Jewish model. It's God's model, uh, and so when God came to Earth, He did this with twelve men primarily, but He had a group of seventy, larger group that followed Him. And by the time He leaves, He has a group of one hundred and twenty that go up into the upper room, and from that, the church is born. And uh, Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman is a wonderful book. If you haven't read it on discipleship, it's sort of a, a very essential, essentialist, basic, uh, foundational little pamphlet almost that just sort of unpacks the simple genius of Jesus as he just spends three years with 12 men. And then within that 12, three in particular, and their lives are changed. And uh, the world is... is it, was changed and is being changed as a result of that that deep but very narrow investment um it's what he calls us to do as followers as disciples to to call other people alongside of us as we follow christ it's what paul does it's what you see here with all these greek young men of course timothy he's in that list too his we know a little bit more about him his mother was a jew but also his father was a greek and all these men are um Gentiles and 
Paul became a minister to the Gentiles, to those that were receptive. God had called him to that and receptive to the gospel. And, and this super Jew, as it were, is, 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 is mentoring these, these Gentile men. And we don't really understand now how just absolutely countercultural that was to the Jewish, to the Jewish culture. Um, but that became his family. And, and so just as we focus, as we swing back toward, I hate, it's embarrassing to say that, but as we refocus post-COVID as a church body, as the body of Christ on discipleship and really asking ourselves, what does it mean to be followers of Christ, to carry our crosses, to, to disciple men, women, and children, and then to, uh, to reach the lost and, and to make disciples of them, teaching them to obey all that Christ has commanded and inviting them into that fellowship through the good news of what he's done and who he is, how he's made a way, how he is the way to God, and he's made a way to God uh, at infinite cost to himself, and that's it, free for us at no cost to us through faith uh, in his sacrifice and in his resurrection. Um, as we proclaim that, people will, will come to Christ by faith, and then we get to disciple them. And it's not just a Bible study. It's not just um, praying with them. It's not just confessing our sins one to another. It is that. But it's sharing life with them. It's going to the grocery store with them. It's inviting them into our homes. It's um, working alongside of them, moving. You know, I'm moving, not that I'm the example. Uh, I am an example, and I do all this very imperfectly. Even the things that I can see, uh, I'm doing imperfectly, much less the things that I can't see, my blind spots. But we're all works in progress. But tonight, you know, moving, having some guys come over to help me move some stuff. And is that a favor to them? No, it's a favor to me. But even, even as you, that's part of discipleship. You invite people to come help you. You show them that you're a human. You have needs. You're a sinner. You confess. You point them to Jesus. You know, I am not the Christ. That's one of the things that I want to convey most in, uh, as I disciple other people is I am not the Christ. Jesus is the Christ, and that's as it should be. And we get to follow him together and to worship him together and to approach the throne of grace together and to receive our inheritance together as brothers and sisters and as a body. Um, and so I just want to encourage you as a, as a people to imitate Paul, to imitate Jesus, um, to let Christ bind you and to bring others into your life and, and to not do, let me condense it to this phrase. Don't, don't do anything alone. That's not true. You know, you need, I'm sort of, I'm countermanding myself as soon as I say that we need time alone. We need unhurried time with God in the secret place, in the prayer closet. Jesus was constantly pulling away, but so much of his life and ministry was shared with others, he invited them into his space. He poured himself out and he, he taught, as it were, along the way, along life's narrow way as things would happen. Things became object lessons uh, about how to live as citizens of the kingdom and sons of, and daughters of the Father. So that only happens as we bring people along. And a great verse that kind of encapsulates all this is, is uh, this is what we do with our children, right? You might hear this and go, whoa, that's a lot. Well, we make disciples of our kids for good or bad. They become little disciples of us. They start to look uh, and, and smell and sound a lot like us for, again, for better or for worse. The apple doesn't fall very far from the tree typically. And that's because you spend a lot of time with your kids. And if you don't, they're not going to turn out well, you know, they're just not. Uh, but you spend a lot of time with your kids. You share your life with your kids. You share meals with your kids. You, you take care of them. You go on family holidays and so on and so forth. You do homework with them. You teach them how to work, how to mow the lawn, how to do dishes, how to put up dishes, and on and on it goes, how to clean their room. You play board games. You have family movie night. That's time. 
It's sharing life, and they see you argue, and you hopefully you teach them how to argue well. Mommy and daddy love each other. We aren't mad. We're just, we're just arguing. We're working through something. I mean, I've lost count of how many times I've said that, but we do that with our children, and that's really what Deuteronomy, the, you know, the Deuteronomy 6, when someone asked Jesus, what's the, what's the most important commandment? He said, without hesitation, he, said, he quoted from Deuteronomy 6, the Lord your God is one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's from Leviticus 19, a different place in the law. But, you know, love God with everything you are. And then right after that, uh, less often quoted, it, he goes on to talk about how we ought to teach the law, everything God has commanded to us, the way that we ought to live, his character, um, and the good commands he's given to us, to our children. He didn't say in a classroom. He said, whether you're, when you're standing, when you're sitting, when you're lying down, when you're doing this, when you're doing that, teach them. And that's what Jesus did. He would walk along and he's, you know, J- Jordan and I were this morning at 6 a.m. meeting together uh, to go through the word, to pray together, to share life, to talk, to catch up. To, to, sh- to sharpen each other as iron sharpens iron. And we were in John 15 and abide in the vine. Jesus says, I am the vine, you're the branches. And you know, he was, he was probably around maybe in the Kidron Valley or maybe up past that, looking out over the temple somewhere near the Mount of Olives and uh, in one of his favorite places. And there was, he was probably passing through a vineyard of some sort or something leafy, and then he used that as an object lesson as they were walking uh, away from the Passover meal right before he was betrayed into the hands of men and then crucified the next, the next morning. But wherever he went, he was, he was using things that he saw as lessons to teach his disciples about what God is like and his kingdom and human sinfulness and God's forgiveness. And, and so that's what we're to do, and we're to bring people along in that. So don't, you know, to condense it and apply it to you guys, and to myself, don't, don't do things alone. Again, be with the Lord alone, but bring people along. And as you share the gospel and people come to Christ, disciple these, disciple folks, not just with a Bible study, not just with a once a week meeting, but invite them in to your life and invite yourself into their life and walk and talk with them. And uh, that's, how, that's how God is followed, is in the interstices of life, in the stitching, uh, in the in-between places. And so, and as, and as your disciples see you, see your sin and see you confess your sin and repent and see your clay feet, that'll be a lesson to them as well, that you're not the Christ and that'll be part of your discipleship. But that's what we see with Paul here. And, you know, to sort of wrap up this first section and move on to the Eutychus falling out the window, um, you know, he's to sort of understand it better. The larger context of Acts 20 is that Paul it starts in Ephesus, but he leaves Ephesus quickly. And this is, you know, he's sort of at the tail end of his third missionary journey. He leaves Ephesus and he decides that, he, you know, he's going to go back up north and west through to Macedonia, you know, to the Balk- current day Balkans, and then down into Greece proper, and then back through again uh, to sort of touch along the uh, the eastern coast of the Aegean Sea, the the west coast of, of southwest Turkey, before in a boat before before going trying to make it to Jerusalem before Pentecost, which is fifty days past past Passover, 
And so um, he's finishing up his third missionary journey. And during that time, these seven verses, Luke doesn't tell us in this narrative, but we know from Paul's letters that he, he, writes, his first, he writes two letters to the Corinthian church. He meets up with some disciples, uh, including Titus. He writes his letter to the church at Rome, so he's at the top of his game, theologically, as it were. Rome's his kind of magnum opus of theology. And uh, Romans, I mean. And he, at uh, 1.5 to 2 years, scholars are pretty agreed, uh, seem to pass. About two years passed during this time where he is just going back through and encouraging through his teaching of the Word of God and through pointing people to Jesus as Lord, as the risen Lord, as the Messiah that the Scriptures speak of, who's, who's start, started the renewal of the worlds and, and open up, opened up a, um, a portal through the gray rain cur- curtain of this world, through, um, through the pitiless wall of this world, um, into a new hope. And um, I'm using some Tolkien-esque language there, but you'll pardon me. And, uh, and, he's, and he's checking on churches and writing to churches and gathering disciples and going with disciples. And then he comes back through um, these places in, first in Turkey, and then, and then he sets sail back to Jerusalem. And, and after this, so this is sort of the tail end of his third missionary journey. And after this, the rest of Acts is really Paul defending his ministry, giving speeches in chains, and it's really him either going toward being imprisoned or being imprisoned, and then the book finishes with him under house arrest in Rome, continuing to preach the gospel, make disciples, and build up the church from, from house arrest. So, so this is kind of it as far as before Paul gets put in chains. And um, what we see him doing here is bringing disciples along as he strengthens the churches. And, and uh, you know, the, the place names that are mentioned are, they kind of bore us, our eyes sort of glaze over, but the ancient audience would have loved this stuff because it just reminded them, they were places that they knew. Um, this reminded them that, um, that, that this was real, this is history, it's not a story, it actually happened, and, and we are in the places that we know that God's calling us to with the people he's calling us to as we bring disciples along. We're part of this same story, right? That's one of the reasons we call ourselves an Acts 29 church. But he, he mentions, um, you know, they stop in Troas, which is where Eutychus falls out of the window, which is in sort of northwest Turkey, I believe, or west Turkey anyway. And then he mentions in verses 13 and beyond Assos, uh, which there was a, a huge uh, temple, a monument to Athena on, on top of the Acropolis there on the, on the mountain. And then he goes on from Athos to to Mytilene and from Mytilene to, to Chios where Homer, the poet Homer, the greatest of the Greek poets was born. Maybe the greatest, one, maybe the greatest, anyway, epic Greek poet. Samos, which is the next day they touched to Samos. That's where, you know, we all learned about the Pythagorean theorem. The mathematician Pythagoras was from Samos, real place. Miletus is the next place and that was a huge harbor in a key, a key city in that part of the, part of the world. So um, these are real places. And anyway, he stops. It's sort of like, you know, if, 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 if Luke was writing about Paul's journeys and saying he, he went from Houston um, in sort of Katy area to and, and, and taught the elders there, and then he moved, he moved over. He went up Highway 71 to Austin, but not before stopping in LaGrange for a few days um, to check on the church there. And then uh, he went up to Austin, and, uh, and from Austin... He, he, he popped over to, to Green, Texas, you know, before hitting San Antonio. And in Green, Texas, he was in the, uh, he was in the Green Dance Hall 
and there was it was packed to overflowing and they had TVs over in the the grist mill and there was you know people were sitting on rails looking out over the Guadalupe River with that sort of sheer uh, hillside down down to the and the limestone cliffs down to the limpid icy cold Guadalupe and you know he was teaching till late and someone fell asleep on the rail and and, and fell over and tumbled down that that limestone hillside down into the icy cold Guadalupe and you know we'd all not all of us but some of us know those places and we're familiar with them even if we haven't been there and that's very real to us we would be reminded that's history that happened we could go to those places um that's 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 what is happening here and and so anyway um we we transitioned from there to so so how do i wrap that up look don't as you make disciples make them by by bringing them into your life and don't don't do it alone um but 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 as we move on and, and sort of finish off this uh, this little message here in Acts twenty, what happens? Eutychus, a boy named Eutychus, um, Paul stops for a few days and he's teaching on on the it's said the Lord's Day. That's the first time this is mentioned in that way in the Book of Acts. The Lord's Day. Scholars are divided on whether Paul means Saturday or Sunday here. Um, I maybe lean towards Sunday, but um, you know believers started. Jewish believers started worshiping at some point fairly early on Sunday as opposed to the, the Jewish Sabbath of Saturday because, because Christ rose on Sunday the, in, in the first day of the week. And um, so they're worshiping whether on Saturday or Sunday. And, and um, if it's Sunday, you know, they were, according to the Roman calendar, they were working, according to the Roman schedule, they were working that day. And so they would have stopped working and and packed into this place, perhaps after a meal in the evening as work shuts down. And um, they would have packed into this room. It could have been an apartment tenement. And they were on the third floor, second floor British parlance, so it would have been 25, 30 feet up, easy. And it's nighttime, and there's no electricity, and so the torches are burning, and there's, there's there are fumes in the air, and it's very tight. It could have been in a hallway, um, joining apartment blocks could have been in a, a larger room but either way uh, it's it's stuffy enough and tight enough and late enough that this little kid he's between 8 and 14 because of the word that's used um Eutychus his name means lucky so you know God and 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 Luke the author are not without uh both both God and Luke are the authors here right divine divine authorship through human authorship but uh not without a sense of humor here through this sad event where he gets tired, he's in the window because he wants to get some fresh air, but for a boy of 10 years old, my, my son Seth is 10 and he's about Seth's age, and for a boy of 10, for anyone, they would have been tired as Paul waxes on in his teaching. Again, he's at the top of his game. He's just written the book of Romans and he's, he's teaching these riveting, life-giving things about Jesus Christ and what he's come to do and who he is. And I mean, can you imagine just a generation, half a generation removed from the resurrection of the of the Christ and and the world is being set on fire by this guy, but but even even so, um, you wax on long enough, somebody's going to fall asleep, and this this kid does, and he, without breaking his fall, unless he unless he woke up in the air, uh, you know he's asleep as he falls out of the window past midnight, and he hits this stone stone pavement below without breaking his fall because he's asleep and 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 uh, dies. I mean, just stone cold dead. And so they rush down, and the Greek is more clear, but he fall, Paul falls on him. He falls on him. He throws his body on him, kind of like, 
think of Elisha doing that with, with the, um, the Gentile woman's boy that creates that prophet's chamber for Elisha, but uh, he, he, he stretches himself out mouth to mouth, hand to hand, eye to eye, face to face on this boy. And, and Paul might have done something similar. He throws himself on this boy and everyone's grieving, super upset. And, and Paul, life comes back to in, the life, the resurrection life of the living Christ comes back into this boy. And Paul says, it's fine. And he brings him, he brings him to himself and brings him up gently, no doubt. And, and they, they come up and Paul teaches a little longer and then they have a bite to eat and then the sun comes up and then they send Paul on his way. But um, this is a beautiful bit of history here. It's the ninth, as one scholar says, it's the ninth um, and I think final uh, resurrection account from the dead in the Bible. Uh, four of them involve Jesus, uh, the fourth of Jesus as being his own resurrection. Um, others, Peter, Paul, Elisha, Elijah. And, and so... It, it happened in history. It's happening still today. Um, Craig Keener, two volumes, Miracles. He documents 2,000 years of miracles. These are only the documented ones. He says that many, many more, many, many more um, probably happened that he's heard of or, writ- or read about. But this is, he just includes in these massive two volumes, very small print, all documented, the ones that could be well documented by multiple attestation, etc. And he has a whole section on on resurrections that are still going on today have throughout church history and um jesus said greater things will you do of course and so we shouldn't be surprised um but another scholar um c peter wagner talks about how he asked one nigerian evangelist how he'd heard that he had prayed to to receive people back from the dead and he said how many have you have you received back from the dead have you seen resurrected from the dead and the evangelist said I, I don't know. I lost count. <laughs> so, um, we in the West are the exception. Um, it's biblical, it's historical, it's global. And we shouldn't be surprised. You know, we kind of betray our small, um, our small and weak understanding of the miracle of, of spiritual resurrection from being spiritually dead as doornails and opposed to God. Um, when someone comes to Christ and they're born again to a living hope from the dead, that is a far greater miracle than a physical resurrection. And we know that in a variety of ways. And one of the ways we know that is when Jesus um, forgives the paralytic of his sins. And then he, people look around like only God can forgive sins. And he's basically like, yeah, I'm God. I have the authority to do this. And just so you know that I have that authority I say to you, stand up and stand up and walk. And so he didn't, he doesn't raise somebody from the dead here, but he, he raises somebody from a mat. He does this miracle and, um, he says, look, it's a far, it's far harder to say to someone, truly your sins are forgiven. The, the miracle of making us right before God, the miracle of raising, bringing us from death and opposition to God to life and friendship with God is far greater miracle and w- will result Invariably, 100% of the time, the new birth, the spiritual resurrection will result in a physical resurrection when Christ returns. And so um, we shouldn't be surprised at the fact that people are still raised from the dead. We should, we should pray for it. We should know that oftentimes, hopefully, it will lead to a spiritual resurrection. Because um, if, you're, if you're just raised physically, you're going to die again, and your soul's going to die, and you'll be forever dead. 
even with a resurrected body. But if you are raised to new life spiritually, you will, you will get a new body one day that will be, um, a, you'll be a spiritual um, body, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, and you'll never die. And so, um, but the body is important to the Lord and we should be praying for miracles. We should be expecting them. We should be seeking to use them as avenues to preach the gospel and to see people spiritually resurrected um, to life in Christ and, and reconciled to the Father and brought back into the family of God through the, through the work of Christ. And, and we should repent of our materialism and of our unbelief and of our um, really small view of what happens, of the miracle that happens when somebody... Uh, believes on Christ and is born again. And so, you know, all this is wrapped up in, in this text here in Acts 20. I would uh, summarize it just by saying, you know, let me, let me finish with a story rather than being didactic. I have a friend who's, uh, whose wife left him over 10 years ago. He's a, a believer, loves the Lord, man of integrity. Three, they had three kids from the marriage and she cheated on him and was into drugs and and uh, he basically raised them alone and was just faithful, faithful as a single single man and a, and a father. Very always very respectful about his um, his former wife and and she went and did her own thing and um, and then recently he was surprised that God brought a woman into his life and and uh, she professed faith but then after three months of marriage and she had two children from a previous marriage her husband had died and they were just so happy and got married and uh such a blessing but then after three months she said i'm done she said she said cognitive she blamed it on cognitive dissonance and basically just for whatever reason just doesn't think it's a match but it's not for any scriptural reason and he is just devastated again and just saying, how do you think this marriage can be saved, Taylor? And I said, yes, because God is the God of resurrection. So resurrections can take many forms. It always has to be a work of God. It could be a restored marriage. It could be, uh, it could be a spiritual resurrection, a new birth. It could be a physical resurrection. But it's always going to be a miracle of God through the person and the work of Jesus Christ by faith in him. And so... Um, let's be people of faith. Let's be people who don't do things alone, who um, preach the gospel to the lost, see people saved, bring them up in Christ, disciple them, share our lives with them. As Paul did, as Jesus did, uh, he continues uh, to work through us, and we're part of this grand story. And one day we'll see him face to face. Take care.